Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Trump comes out swinging today at a press conference at Trump Tower. The Q&A was feisty. Clip. I didn't wait long. What? Why? I didn't wait long. I didn't wait long. I wanted to make sure, unlike most politicians, that what I said was correct. When I make a statement, I like to be correct. I want the facts. This event just happened. In fact, a lot of the event didn't even happen yet as we were speaking. Trump is not backing down on this one. In fact, after his second response to what happened in Charlottesville, it seemed that today Trump had had enough of being uh, denounced for not denouncing enough, quickly enough, harshly enough. And as we all know, there is no such thing as a denunciation of racism by Trump that will placate the left. Uh, Buck Sexton with you all now. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you for joining uh, Team Buck. Welcome to the Freedom Hut. We've got a lot to hit today. I mean, we just had this Trump press conference. I'll walk through some parts of it with you that were that were fiery. And it is it is a new Trump. I mean, this is uh, a, a rejuvenated president today. I mean, it seemed like he just came back from Trump Tower. And, and I, I don't know what's in the food or the water over there or whatever it is, but he was it was like Superman went and hung out in the lair and came out with more you know, uh, more powers than before, because he was just firing on all cylinders today with this media. It was quite a show he put on. And uh, I will get into the specifics of it with you in a second. I also want to note that we will be talking about uh, later on in the show. Uh, we'll be joined by somebody who was in Charlottesville to give us a take from what was going on on the ground there, since that's still very much in the headlines. Uh, I will talk to you about the business leaders that are leaving the Trump administration. We have an update on North Korea. Kim Jong-un has stepped aside. If they're playing chicken with nuclear weapons, it was Kim Jong-un who stepped aside first or who hit the hit the brakes. Uh, and that is an interesting policy posture for the Trump administration. Also, Venezuela as a narco-trafficking state at the highest level of government and what that means for us. It There's some stuff. I'm telling you, people do not pay enough attention to this. It is fascinating what's happening there. Oh, and also the battle over battle monuments and Confederate names and all of that. We've, we'll get into that uh, this hour, some of those national security issues coming up in a buck brief at the end. And, of course, your thoughts welcome at any point during the show, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. All right, this press conference, I mean, this was the equivalent of Trump coming out there and yelling, are you not entertained? I mean, this was... A totally different posture for the administration. Look, he decided to go on offense. I can understand why he might think that this is the best option because he gave one statement. They said it was imperfect. He gave another statement, said that that statement wasn't good enough. 
And also, we are now seeing more of what we could have expected all along from the left, which is almost lionizing, I mean, aggrandizing, and certainly normalizing the Antifa protesters. And it was really a riot. And we'll get into that more later with uh, our friend from the Daily Signal, Jared Stepman, who will tell you that he was in Charlottesville. It was a riot. People keep talking about this like the way the, way the media narrative of this goes is there was a, a neo-Nazi protest and there were some peaceful counter-protesters and then the neo-Nazis just decided that they were going to have one of their own or one of them decided on his own to ram a car to people and kill and kill somebody and injure a bunch of other people. Now, someone did decide to do all that, but what led up to that was not a peaceful, pro, a peaceful counter-protest to a neo-Nazi march. No, you had black-clad, armed anti-fascists squaring off against vile, grotesque, neo-Nazi, white nationalist types, whatever the, you know, the, uh, the various factions from within the, the racist brigade are. But that's a more, that, that is what happened. And so to take that out of the context or to, to take that out of the discussion is to remove it from the context of what is true, which is that there it was a riot. This was a riot between racists and anarchists or fascists. Depends on how you want to define them. I mean, Antifa can't even really define itself other than they are radicals, leftist radicals. People are calling them the alt-left. And uh, Trump brought this up and, and got into more of this. Uh, he said that both. He said there was violence. This is what's going to really get this debate, get this fight going. He said there was violence. Remember, on many sides, in his initial statement, that was what got people so upset that he said that he because he condemned he, he condemned hatred, he condemned violence. And you know, I can tell you, uh, I knew the Trump family a little bit here in New York growing up. He's not a racist. His family's not racist. And I, I really resent the media implications all the time that he is. He's just not a racist. They may not like some they may not like some of the or any of the people who support him. And there certainly are racists who support Trump. But, you know, the Communist Party USA supports Hillary Clinton in the last election. No one seems to saddle her with that issue. I mean, they're not sitting around saying, well, you know, communists were responsible for the murder of Tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people in total in the uh, 20th century. So, you know, isn't that a Hillary Clinton's fault? The Communist Party USA sponsored. You know, this is this is the game they play, though, right? This is any racist who likes Donald Trump proves that Donald Trump is a racist somehow. And it's just it's just too much. And I think he finally did take it personally. I think he's had enough. I think he doesn't want to hear this anymore from people. And and I get it. But remember, the initial statement, the initial on many sides was what got him in trouble. So then he came out and said, you know what? There, there was violence on both sides. I, I will tell you something. I watched those very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. And you have, uh, you, you had a group on one side that was bad and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. You had a group, you had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit and they were very, very violent. So he's saying these counter these counter protesters are actually rioters. And that there are people who showed up and they wanted to fight. They showed up with gas masks and 
balaclavas on, all dressed in black. They wanted to fight. Now, was that all the protesters? Of course not. Or the counter-protesters, right? You know, it, it's tough. The, the terminology here starts to blend into other other words. You've got you've got uh, marchers, really, which is what this this uh, Nazi neo-Nazi white nationalist group. They were marchers, and then they I guess they also had a demonstration, which you could call a protest. You had the protesters of the march or counter-protesters, and within that counter-protest group, you had Antifa, who are these anti-fascists. I've talked to you about them who are now, the left is trying very hard to make them seem like they're the new freedom fighters or something, and they're a disgrace. They're violent, they're destructive, they're babyish, they uh, disrespect the most important freedoms of this country, the First Amendment, they disrespect uh, the right of others to assemble peaceably and, and do so safely. They do this all over the country, by the way. Forget about what happened in Charlottesville for a moment. Antifa is a national movement. It pops up all across the country. White nationalists and Spencer and his ilk are grotesque clowns that are hated by a vast majority of the American people, do not speak for the right, are not representative of the right, and no person in good standing with the conservative movement would stand up for white nationalism or neo-Nazis or whatever. Plenty of people that I know on the left who are considered intellectuals, who are powerful, who have considerable followings will say, yeah, well, Antifa is right that Trump is a fascist. They just shouldn't break windows and do bad stuff. So there, there is a difference here. There's a separation. There's a there's a dichotomy. But as I was saying, within that protest movement or the counter protest of the neo-Nazi march, you had people who were Antifa. You also had people who were just there to stand up against I would stand up against Nazism and racism. This young woman who was killed, tragically, quite clearly was there just to exercise her First Amendment rights. And some right, uh, you know, some uh, alt, uh, whatever, alt-right, white nationalist idiot ran his murderer, ran his car into her and a bunch of other people, killed her and, and wounded many others. But th- this is the, the story. This is what happened. Now, you can we can talk about the political ramifications and what is representative and what is aberrant, you know, what is abnormal for the current ideology of a political movement. And that's where the fight is. You know, it, it, it's easy to say. And I, look, it, this is a true statement. Antifa does not represent the Democratic Party and uh, Spencer and his alt-right white nationalists do not represent the Republican Party. Okay, those are true statements. Is Antifa as reviled on the left by as many people and in as clear and obvious a fashion as the alt-right is on the right or as the white nationalists are on the right? That's where I think there's a a more interesting and robust debate to be had. I think the answer is no. I think Antifa, I think the notion that Donald Trump is a fascist and a racist and a xenophobe who's trying to destroy America is mainstream thought on the left. It is mainstream with the Democratic Party. It is mainstream with the mainstream media. And Antifa is merely, they are the shock troops, if you will. They are the, the vanguard, the street fighters of that ideology Whereas not only do people on the right disavow uh, the tactics of people like these neo-Nazi marchers who 
the one who ran his car to people, the one who will punch people, the ones who show up and threaten or engage in violence, but also the background ideology behind them. That in any way, shape, or form, white people are better than or superior than anyone else is rejected wholesale by conservatism. It is rejected on the right. And so I do not think that these are two things that you can say, well, it's exactly the same. It is, as I said, it is true that Antifa is not representative of the Democratic Party, just as it is true that white nationalists are not representative of the Republican Party. But it is not true that both that the ideologies that motivate both are equally rejected in my this is look it's a radio show i'm telling you what i think what i see and what i believe and that's what i see happening right now trump saying that there's blame on both sides is obviously going to set the media and the left just in a frenzy which we could all expect uh he was also he was asked uh more questions. he was asked specifically you know what let me I'll get into some more of those details. He was asked about David Duke. He was asked about the driver, the hom- the vehicular homicide driver of that uh, car. Uh, he was asked about, and then he was asked about Bannon, and then we'll get into the monuments. A lot more from this press conference, which just happened before we came on air. So I'm uh, pleased that I'm able to bring you up to speed on it in case you missed it. And if you did hear it, we'll dive into it together. And as I said... Venezuela, narco state, North Korea, nuclear showdown, uh, the battle over monuments and renaming and Confederate monuments. All of this coming up on the show today. We've got a lot to cover. 844-900-BUCK. Well, I think the driver of the car is a disgrace to himself, his family, and this country. And that is, you can call it terrorism. You can call it murder. Trump is quite clear here that he's a disgrace calling it terrorism or calling it murder i I was trying to get into yesterday some analysis of this because i was still looking at the facts and making sure that we're all very clear for example if if the driver uh had had an altercation with one person in that crowd beforehand and then drove the vehicle into the crowd to try to hit that person and hit other people that's murder this person still should go to prison for decades life whatever it may be but if calling it terrorism would seem to be a stretch of what is terrorism. Is it a hate crime? Well, it depends on who he was trying to hit and why. But the media was already running around. In fact, a lot of Republicans were running around saying that it was an act of domestic terrorism right away. It may have been. It looks like it was. But not all the facts are in. And Trump was saying that today. Not everything about that specific incident is known. And as we are now able to discuss a little bit more it was a riot this was a riot situation this was not peaceful protesters squaring off against uh nazis and then a nazi just killed somebody out of nowhere there had been other things other violence going on leading up to this i don't know if it was in the immediate vicinity again don't know everything but a lot of assumptions are being made and it was interesting to see yesterday, and I, I was trying to be as close to the facts on this as I could, uh, but also I, I had this sense, and if you go back and listen to the show, I think I was certainly more um, hesitant to buy entirely the dominant media line on this than a lot of other folks, including a lot of other conservatives, uh, because it seemed like all of a sudden there was no discussion whatsoever. We don't. Uh, there was no discussion whatsoever of what was going on with Antifa. There was no discussion of that this was a riot. It was being talked about like it was a peaceful protest and 
that was it. And then somebody killed somebody. It was an act of terrorism. And um, and then, of course, the problem was not that you had this, spill, this, this spiraling situation and political uh, hatred and violence and racism all combusting together in Charlottesville so much as it was that Donald Trump didn't do a good enough job denouncing it. Well, he clearly today rejected that categorization of what happened. But what you saw yesterday was people... The good news is that racism is so uh, potent to charge that almost everybody gets scared of even of opening the door just a little bit to the insinuation, to the accusation, I'm sorry, um, to the possibility of being called a racist. So that's. Why I think a lot of people were immediately, oh, gosh, you know, Trump, his statement was so, look, he had to give another statement. There was a lot of pressure on him. I do think that he could have, and as I said yesterday, it was an unforced error to leave any opportunity for people, because they were going to jump on him if they had any chance, even if they didn't have a chance, but he gave him a chance. That all said, uh, the preponderance of commentary I saw from conservatives on this seemed to go along with, yeah, maybe Trump does have some some fondness for uh, white nationalists and 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 r- real racists. I mean, actual real racists. And I think that some of this, I'm, I'm just putting this out there for you, I think that some of that reaction, including among people that I very much respect and like, was understandably prodded. It was pushed on. Uh, it was, you know, coerced in a sense, quietly coerced, by the fear of being seen to be insufficiently hateful towards hate. It was a concern that if you don't denounce this and Trump's insufficient, if you don't denounce Trump's insufficient denouncement, you're insufficiently denouncing and therefore you must be racist. And that's how powerful the fear is of being considered racist in this country, that people were just, ah, anything to anything but that. Yes, it was so it was let's forget about the alt left. Let's forget about everything that happened on that side. It was just Trump's bad response. Neo-Nazis are bad. Neo-Nazis are hateful racists. And that's all we're going to talk about. We know neo-Nazis are bad. We know this is why I started the show yesterday. I said, you don't have to have me come here and tell you that racists are racism is a moral and logical fallacy. It is, it is wrong on every level. It is wrong in the realm of morality. It is wrong on the level of biology. It is wrong on the level of ethics. It is wrong on the level of politics. I mean, you don't need me to go. We already know this. And I would offer to you that on the right, true racists, and there are racists on the right, there are racists on the left, too. There are racists, by the way, who are racist against people. That or there, Rather, there are racists who are Non-white, that is also a possible thing that maybe is worth a bit more discussion in this country if we're going to talk about race relations. It is possible to be a racist and not be white. That, uh, this is, a, this is a, a shocking phenomenon for some in the media. That that would be, and then they'll say, well, no, that's not because of power structure and you got to look at intersectionality. And I say, okay, well, let's look at other countries. Can racism exist there? When you say the alt-right... Uh, define alt-right to me. You define it. Go ahead. Well, I'm saying, as no, Senator, define it for me. Come on, let's go. Define Senator it McCain defined them as the same group. Okay, what about the alt-left that came charging at him? Excuse me. What about the alt-left that came charging at the, as you say, the alt-right? Do they have any semblance of guilt? Let me ask you this. What about the fact they came charging, that they came charging with clubs in their hands, swinging clubs? Do they have any 
problem? I think they do. Uh, isn't that a fair question to ask? Isn't that worth addressing at least a little bit? Does the media have any interest in this? You see, CNN did a piece yesterday, you know, who are the Antifa? And it's, oh, they're... There's really no, no mention of the violence, the destruction. The, you know, they, they're opposed to they're opposed to the alt-right. No, no. Antifa is opposed to a lot more than the alt-right. A- Antifa doesn't allow conservatives to come to campus. Antifa won't let people who are academics of conservative uh, background or conservative ideology show up on campus unmolested. That, that's what Antifa is, right? I mean, and it's much worse than that. Antifa won't allow certain public marches. Won't allow, they think they have the right to censor. They think they have not just a heckler's veto, but a rioter's veto. And they tried to exercise that rioter's veto, granted over disgraceful people with a terrible message. But we've been we as a country have been dealing with this issue for a long time. You can go and read the case, Supreme Court case, in Skokie, Illinois. Can neo-Nazis march in a neighborhood where there are Holocaust survivors under the First Amendment? Is that protected speech? Everyone remember the answer? The answer is as, as grotesque as it is, freedom sometimes includes the freedom to be grotesque. And so, yes, Nazis could march in Skokie, Illinois. So... We, we seem to have been forgetting this. By the way, Will, you have people who are outright saying that, um, you know, that, that hate speech is not protected under the Constitution. Now, this was on over on uh, MSNBC. Uh, well, I think what's important in this moment is uh, white nationalists are actually fighting to take away people's rights. Uh, Black Lives Matter and groups like Black Lives Matter are fighting for equality. And um, hate speech, which is uh, what we're seeing coming out of white nationalist groups, uh, is not protected on the First Amendment rights. She, she, this is somebody on TV to share opinions and expertise. And she, she is mistaken. Uh, although that is changing, I, I will note that hate speech is increasingly because the left has been playing this game of moving the goalposts all the time and creating this perception of speech equals action equals violence on campus and in law when they can or trying to get it in law and through through regulation. Um, but no, hate, hate speech is very if hate speech is not protected under the First Amendment, we don't really need a First Amendment, do we? Incitement to violence is not protected, but that's a very specific category. And there are some nuances here. There are some areas of gray where the freedom does brush up against imminent danger and realities that we will regulate through law. But just because you don't like something doesn't mean that you're protected from it. The left has this is main. That's mainstream thought now. That is mainstream thought. One more point I want to make before we go into a couple of calls here. Uh, and that is there is a, a very widely accepted notion on the left that uh, that racism, that racial tension, racism, and anything having to do with race that is destructive and bad is only the result of the kinds of people that we saw marching in Charlottesville as part of this guy Spencer's group, these white nationalists, the alt-right. Racism as a concept has actually been around for a very long time. Racism, with a simple definition, is to think less of someone, to treat someone differently, or to un- to take away the rights of someone because of race or skin color or ethnicity. It's not a, not a hard thing to define, but it also is applicable far beyond just the 
the racial history and, and racial tensions of this country. Racism has existed in many countries in many different forms. And so the moment that you because the left will say, oh, well, because of the current structures in America, racism, only white racism is possible. And therefore, only white people in America are responsible for racial tensions. This is a, a again, a, a fallacy of logic. This is this is wrongheaded thinking. Um, but it is also possible to disprove this theory by saying, well, hold on a second. If racism is only possible with white people, what about in countries where people are demeaned because of their skin color? Where no, we're not talking about any white people. This exists in South Asia. It exists in East Asia. I can take you through a lot of countries. By the way, if you want to hear some racism that will blow your mind in terms of how uh, blatant and and sounds like something from centuries past. Spend some time in, the, in some parts of the Middle East, by the way. I know. I know. I'm, I'm telling you some stuff now that people don't want to. Oh, yeah. Trust me. Spend some time in some parts of the Middle East and, and ask, ask around about what they think. Ask some. Uh, you know, I'm not saying everybody. I know. See, I'm painting with a very broad brush here. But if we're going to be painting with if we're going to talk about racism at the national level, we are painting with a broad brush, you know. Go around and, and, and ask a whole bunch of uh, ask a whole bunch of Saudis what they think Saudi Muslims what they think of Somali Muslims. You might be you might be very interested to hear what. And if you don't believe me, go read Ayan Hirsi Ali's biography, autobiography, Infidel, of how she was treated as a black African Muslim in Saudi Arabia, and what she was able to pick up on there. So racism is not just an American thing. It's not just a legacy of the legacy of slavery. And no, no. Racism exists well beyond that. It's been around for a long time. It's it's a part of uh, tribalism and tribal thinking that has existed from you know really the, the dawn of mankind, right? And it's it's wrong. It's bad. It's evil. But let's not allow the left to define this as as simplistic an issue as just there's these white guys like Richard Spencer out there and they're racist and that's the only racism that exists and that's why there's racial tension. I mean, you've got a system, I've talked to you about it here on the show before, that increasingly as a matter of, or over time as a matter of law, has been embracing racial preferences and racial set-asides and treating people differently by race. Identity politics, which is at the core of the Democratic Party today, identity politics are toxic. They are simply toxic. They are corrosive. Corrosive to the people who benefit from them, corrosive to the people who are harmed by them. And this is what this is when you start to get to the core of the Democratic Party and you're you're kicking at the load bearing walls of the Democratic Party. And that's why they're so fiercely protective of these narratives and well and go on offense immediately because they know they can cow so many conservatives into submission just with the, the mere threat of, of not being a racist, but being insufficiently animated in your hatred towards racism. That's enough. That's merely enough. It it feels very, it feels a little Soviet sometimes. It feels very uh, a little dear leader North Korea stuff here. You know, you don't just bet. It's not just enough to bow and look at the portrait of the dear leader and 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 cry and thank him for everything he's done for you. You know, you you better do it like longer than the guy next to you, and you better have a a, a real. You know, you better have tears streaming down your face or else maybe maybe you get sent to a camp. I mean, the American version of this with denouncing racism isn't you get sent to camps or anything. It's not North Korea, but you better do it in a way that nobody can question how sincere you are or else maybe you get fired. Maybe you lose friends. 
Maybe your family, uh, you know, abandons you because of public pressure, because somebody's, you know, suggesting that you're uh, this. These are the stakes now. And again, not for being racist, just for being insufficiently hateful towards racism in the eyes of the left, which, as I have said to you, there's no you can never be hateful enough towards racism. Uh, and, And really, the way the Democratic Party has set this up, the way the left has set this up, if you are not on the left, you are a racist. That's that's at the bottom line of all of this. If you do, if you do not embrace identity politics, if you do not embrace all of the leftist orthodoxies of the current progressive movement in this country, you're a racist. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, by the way, if you're black yourself, you know, th- then you're just somebody who has betrayed your race. They will say this to conservatives openly. They will get away with this. The left will you will have uh, white progressives who will sneer at black conservatives on issues of race. That's how twisted this has become. But this is a real discussion on race. It's just much easier. And, I, you know, and I, I've seen so much of this in the last 24 hours. It's so much easier to um, just give give in to the, the simplistic discussion here. And, and you, you don't want, as I call it, the I usually refer to this with the federal government and going after people for leaks. But it's true with the media and racism as well. The eye of Sauron. You don't want to be the one who's caught by, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the eye of Sauron here. What are you, insufficiently hateful towards racism? People just don't want to deal with it. You know, livelihoods are at stake. Reputations are on the line. And so it's just everyone, everyone is just, it's not enough to denounce. You have to grovel and denounce simultaneously and hope for the blessing from the progressive gods above. I'm, I'm not playing that game. I don't like that game. And I think too many of my conservative compatriots got pushed into that in the last couple of days here. Not all of them, not everyone by any means, but a lot of them did. All right, I've got lines led here. I want to take calls. We also have to get to the issue of monuments and pulling down monuments and what that. That's really a a perfect way. We're going to transition to that. I've also got uh, Jared Stepman, who was in Charlottesville, to tell us what he saw there. Um, And we're going to talk about was was there violence on both sides? A key question. Um, That and, and as I said, Venezuela, narco state, North Korea, nuclear state. That's coming up third hour. We'll be there before you know it. Back with you all now, team. Thanks so much for being here. Lines lit. Let's take them. Andrew in Florida on WFLF. Hey, Andrew. Hello there. Hey. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. What's up? Talk to you. I really like your show. Um, Thank you. There's uh, there's a whole bunch of confusing issues going on right now. I listened to uh, Preston Scott's show. Uh, in the morning, and Carter and Allen were very angry. And uh, the reason they're angry, I think, is because, well, they're kids, pretty much. But um, they don't understand that a lot of these, like, Confederate sculptures and things of that sort and monuments, they were erected during a time when the Democratic Party, especially in the South, was at its peak especially when they had a, uh, a private army. And uh, who paid for those monuments? There were a lot of bake sales. And, um, you know, it, a lot of these people believed in the state, and they, they liked to believe that the state would save them from all kinds of different things. But you had people like Woodrow Wilson with his... With his uh, with his Jim Crow laws 
and you had, I mean, just just go back and just give a reread to Ann Coulter's fabulous book, Demonic. Now, yeah, it starts out a little dry, and after you get out of the carnage of the French Revolution, you might see a little bit more. I was pointing up to a couple of fascia in our local post office, and this lady next to me says, what are those things? And I say, they're fascia. You know, look on the back of your Mercury 9, on the back of an FDR 9, and you will see fascia. (laughs) Okay. And she's going, well, that sounds like fascist. And it's like, well, no, well, kind of. But... Uh, I mean, are we going to tear so you're, down? So you're referring to like the, the bundle of sticks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's a fascia. Yeah. Okay. Remember Latin class? Yeah, yeah. Or or the uh, sinews okay. in the bottom of your foot if you have plantar fasciitis, but that's a different thing. <laughs> right. But uh, well, uh, I mean, we're we're, we're, we're nerding out with we our Latin words over here. We're having fun. We have forty forty or fifty years of monuments around this country, buildings, not just monuments, that are dedicated to the state and state power and statist power in a lot of ways. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. But but when you really really talk about left versus right, uh, yeah, was a lot of these dictators around the world, like Mao, uh, on the right? No. They weren't. <laughs> well, we're co- you're, you're covering a lot of territory there, Andrew. But um, I, I, I appreciate. Um, I'm gonna because we're gonna talk about the monuments in the next hour. I'm gonna leave that for now. But just uh, I appreciate you oh. calling in and having and having your say. Thank you, Todd in uh, North Carolina, WPTI. Hey, Todd. Hey, Buck. Just want to talk to you about what's going on in the news compared to what I see every day. Basically. Just like with Dylan Roof, there's a lot of pain there. But what I see in my neighborhood is everybody trying to do the right thing and uh, and to give everybody a chance. I mean, so you're saying that you know the the media after something like uh, like Dylan Roof and the and the Charleston uh, shooting. The, the the media can, can creates or or uh, exacerbates this narrative of racial tensions, but in your day to day life and with your neighbors, you see everybody getting along. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a 40 year old white man, and to look at me, no matter what color you are, you swear up and down. I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I'm weather beaten. I'm a paratrooper. It's just what life's done to me, but everybody gives me a chance. Well, I, mean, I don't. I don't think people would assume you remember the KKK, but I suppose your point is you're saying uh, you're you're a standard well, a standard guess, issue white guy. You ain't seen me. <laughs> you ain't seen me. No, I ain't standard. But I mean, I have hardcore beliefs, and give people a chance. I mean, but that's not what this is about. There's things going on, and we're facing things that I don't think people are prepared for. What do you think, think we're facing, Todd? Don't, let's not talk around it. Let's talk into. Let's talk through the issue, into the issue. What are we, what are we facing? You're facing hardship. You're facing hardship if you don't freaking look around at the people that surround you. If you don't look into the things that you're being fed, 
that's not it. That's not it. Life's always been hard. Suck it up. Yeah, people have struggle, and I think one of the ways that, unfortunately, a lot of other folks have figured out ways into power and prominence is to create narratives of what is the cause of that struggle instead of uh, a sense of unity and common purpose in, in overcoming struggle, right? It's so much easier to tell people in any number of ways, I should note, that they are victims, that there's some conspiracy, there's some systemic problem or systemic plot that holds them down instead of saying, look, every, everyone struggles, everyone's got their pain and their, their issues, and it's up to each one of us to try and be the light in each other's day and try to hold up our neighbor, help our neighbor, regardless of skin color, background, or anything right else. Thing. Do the right thing. I mean, but across the board, I mean, life is hard, but look around you look around you there's there's things that that'll change your mind if you got your eyes open i mean life isn't life isn't about it being easy it's supposed to be a struggle if it wasn't where would we be yeah i always tell people embrace the struggle and understand that everybody around you is struggling in their own way too todd i appreciate your call and thank you for your service sir thank you for calling in uh okay we're going to talk about the monuments uh, fight in the next hour, the uh, tearing down of monuments. Uh, we'll get to that. We'll also be discussing uh, Charlottesville, what happened there with an eyewitness. Somebody was there over the weekend. Uh, he'll be joining us. And then third hour, North Korea, Venezuela, and a story about eugenics in Iceland. That's coming up. Okay, so we've been talking a lot here in the Freedom Hut about everything coming out of the Charlottesville violence, protests, counter-protests over the weekend, the president's reaction to it. But I wasn't there. I'm basing this on press reports, social media, everything that I'm seeing and hearing. But how about somebody who was on the ground in Charlottesville during this whole uh, situation? We are joined by somebody who can actually shed light on that from that perspective. Jared Stepman is with us now. He is a reporter for The Daily Signal. And fun fact, he is married to the uh, wonderful Inez Felcher, who's also been a guest on the show, a dynamic duo, the Stepmans. Jared, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, so you wrote up on DailySignal.com. I went to Charlottesville during the protests. Here's what I saw. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I didn't go into Charlottesville for the actual political event. It was supposed to be a little bit of a weekend getaway, but unfortunately, my wife and I headed right into the middle of a national controversy there in Charlottesville, which, of course, uh, like a like a roving army, these two forces, the Antifa protesters and the the supremacist nationalist groups, descended upon Charlottesville uh, and really created quite a scene there, quite a riot. Uh, the most, frankly, most of the people in Charlottesville weren't too appreciative of. Most of these groups were those from out of town. I, I got a chance to to speak to a lot of the people who were there in the city and on the outskirts. And most were very unhappy that these groups had showed up. A lot of business owners said, you know, why are these people invading our town? One woman actually said to me, as a storm rolled in that night, well, let's hope the the, the storm washes this day away. I, I think that the general mood in the city was these people are outsiders. They, they frankly disgrace the name of Charlottesville, which is now plastered all over the news. And I think, and look, and Charlottesville is really a purple city. There are a lot of liberals there. There are a lot of conservatives there. But I think the, the universal feeling there was that these groups are really unwanted in their city and don't represent the values 
of Americans of the people of Charlottesville. So Charlottesville was the battleground or the, the battlefield of these two fringe ideologies that come from both uh, left and, and right on, on our political spectrum. But it was it was by no means the uh, the creator behind all this. It wasn't that these were locals. And so that's been you saw that yourself. You spoke to people and that's also been established with some of the news reporting. Uh, but in terms of size, I mean, this is I've seen so many different estimates of how many people were on both sides of this uh, protest and counter-protest. What, can you tell us, I mean, did you get any sense of that? I mean, how big was this neo-Nazi march, and how many Antifa protesters were there, and how many just counter-Nazis were there? I mean, what, what, were the, what was the breakdown? Right. I mean, frankly, it was, it was a much uh, maybe smaller event than I think maybe it's been portrayed in the media, and it really, it really started out in as a much smaller event. And, of course, these people, when they think that they're going to get media attention, they tend to cluster and gather. I think one of the things that I, I really noted to me is that a lot of people had no idea this was going to defend their city, but these these groups certainly did. They knew that they'd get media attention. They knew that there would be cameras there. And I'm not saying that I, I blame the media for putting spotlight on you know these, these kind of Nazi groups that showed up. But it certainly encouraged many to descend on this town and to create as much, uh, much more ruckus and much violence, frankly, as possible to bring it here to their cause, to bring eyeballs to what they were doing. And I think that's something that I definitely know. This is not this is not a mass movement by any means. This is not something that most Americans want to be a part. Of. Most Americans are not anti-fa uh, left-wing agitators, and they're not Nazis. I think the, the common sense Americans. Uh, see the, both of these views as radical and, and frankly, hateful. And I think that, that the media attention that was brought on these groups made it seem like a much larger movement than it is. And unfortunately, it just means that there are probably going to be copycats. There are probably going to be instances where these groups show up elsewhere trying to pick a fight uh, with each other and really descending some of our towns and cities in civil discord and chaos. We're speaking to Jared Stepman. He's a reporter for The Daily Signal. He was down in Charlottesville, thought he would be on vacation, but was called into a duty as a reporter based on what happened over the weekend. He's telling us about what he saw down there and also the aftermath. I mean, I assume, Jared, that it was a shock for the city of Charlottesville. It's actually a town I've spent a, a, a fair amount of time in myself. And, and you know, it seems like the two biggest news stories to hit Charlottesville in recent years were the UVA rape hoax uh, and now this. Uh, so it, it's been a tough go in the national news cycle for a while now for Charlottesville. I think before that, you could say it was probably the Dave Matthews band got its start there, which, you know, is a, is a positive thing. Uh, so it's been it's been tough. But the in the aftermath of this, have local authorities uh, established that there'll be new procedures for trying to prevent such a thing from happening? I mean, what were were there any lessons learned you're picking up from people? Were the locals saying that they're going to take a different approach? What were you hearing? Well, I mean, I, I, I certainly hope so. And certainly in the, the immediate aftermath, there were, were cops on, I mean, every corner, especially along the mall, which is kind of the central place where these protests took place. There were five cops on every corner. And frankly, a lot of the people seemed dazed and confused about what had happened. I mean, it was such a stunning event. This, Charlottesville is not a place where they see protests every day, like what you see in Washington, D.C. This is kind of a small town. Uh, you know, there are people that aren't really used to seeing these kind of clashes between protesters. And there was definitely this kind of feeling that people couldn't believe what had happened to their town. They couldn't believe that these, these seeming armies of people had descended upon them 
And I think there was definitely a, a kind of bewilderment from people in town. And I really, I really hope that local authorities across the country learn from this and say, hey, we're not going to allow these kind of protests to, to spill out into this kind of violence. I mean, there were fights breaking out all over the city, and you know, people from these groups started to pour in areas they weren't supposed to be. It was quite a mess. Uh, and, and frankly, it's something that local authorities are going to have to probably deal with in the near-term future. Wait, so, I mean, but it, Jared, really this is important. This is important, because you were there, you were on the ground. You were in Charlottesville, and this is all happening. You're saying that there were fights breaking out all over the city. That th- Another way of saying that is that there was, this is a true, a factual statement, there, were, there was violence on more than one side, there were violence on both sides, there was violence on both sides here. That's what you're telling me. Oh, the, the, oh, there was for sure a violence on both sides. I mean, this was this was the, this was. The, I I don't think it's an understatement to call this the riot. I mean, it really was. It wasn't just people sitting there uh, yelling at each other. It was people that are looking menacingly at each other and and trying to pick a fight. And I think that's what you were seeing there in Charlottesville. Is these aren't just groups here to have a peaceful protest. These are groups that really want to start something bigger. And you know, we've seen this. In other cities, I think, you know, lost in this kind of thing is how many of these, frankly, of these leftist groups that we've seen in in Washington, D.C., we've seen them in Seattle. We saw one in in Durham last night, which, you know, tore down a statue in the city, which was really a mob. It was just a a mess. Uh, We've we've seen these groups that are, are destroying property, that are menacing individuals and people who are going through town. I mean, this really is an incredible thing. And again, especially in a small town like Charlottesville, where people just aren't used to seeing this kind of thing, it was quite stunning. And it's something that I think most Americans have to think, you know, is this coming to a town near me? Am I going to see, uh, you know, leftists and, and Nazis battling it out in the streets? I think that's a pretty terrifying thing that you don't kind of expect to see in America 2017. You expect to see that in Germany of the 1930s. So I, I think this really is kind of a sad moment where, you know, you see these kind of uh, riots breaking out in American streets, and it's something that absolutely has to be addressed. Jared Stepman is a reporter for The Daily Signal. You can read his latest at dailysignal.com. He was in Charlottesville, wrote up what he saw there, and I'm sure we'll be continuing to follow this story. Jared, really appreciate you shedding some light on this. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, team, I actually, uh, Charlottesville is a place that has a, 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 a particular, well, Charlottesville has has a place in in my uh, in my background and 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 I spent a, a fair amount of time there growing up. For most of my peers in the area, so it just it it hurts to see this uh, the city. You know, it's it's sad to see this city, um, which is from everyone I know who's spent time there. A lot of people I know went to school there, University of Virginia, and, uh, whether for undergraduate or graduate school. Um, and they love Charlottesville. I mean, they're they're overwhelmingly the people I know are such big fans. And look, I know Charlottesville has no responsibility for what happened there, and it's not the people of Charlottesville, and we just established that. But it's just a shame that it gets gets dragged into it, right? That it's the scene of this crime and the scene of this this melee, this riot, which I thought was such a such an important uh, point that Jared made there. This was really a riot over the weekend, and to call it just a protest and a counter protest is to miss some very important aspects of this and i think that should factor into our continued discussions about it but just to tell you a little bit of my connections i think uh, really my first my first introduction to the south as a as a yankee as a as a new york city guy came from uh, visits every uh, thanksgiving 
for it. And really up until I was in college, I feel like we went, if not everyone, certainly close to every Thanksgiving and, and many Fourth of Julys as well, where I traveled with my with my immediate family uh, down to Charlottesville to visit my paternal grandmother, who was a, a Southern lady with a, a lot of a lot of personality, a lot of character. Um, that side of the family has my dad's side has has Southern roots, which is why some of the family names, uh, you know, my my dad and my brother are both named Mason, and that's become a very popular name now. But you know, my my brother is you know is a few years older than me, and my dad's obviously a, a few decades older than me. So they they're they're roots. We have some uh, some Southern roots on that side of uh, our ancestry. And so we go down to Charlottesville and, you know, it was quite a, quite an ordeal to get down there. I remember traveling all six of us in the Sexton family, we would get into a, a, a blue Cadillac that my maternal grandfather had sold to my dad for a dollar. Um, and it didn't have functioning air conditioning and we would drive. So during the Thanksgiving trip, it wasn't a bit. You can imagine Fourth of July weekend traveling on I ninety five with uh, six people in the car, four kids, all of whom have way too much energy and like to play the like you know punch each other in the arm when mom's not looking game. And we would stop. And this is before GPS and cell phones. You know, this is now I'm really taking you back. We would inevitably. Uh, get lost, you know, just just because we, my dad would try to take a shortcut, or there were all there were always always something would happen. And, and I remember we would eventually get down to get down to Charlottesville, and we would go see Grandma. And I always thought it was so cool to go see. We called her Grandma, my grandmother on my dad's side, and and uh, she had all she had all these a lot of animals at the house. You know, there's always, and I felt like there were new animals there all the time, and dogs and cats. And she really liked to have animals around. And she had a pool also, which was really cool. I was from New York. I mean, having a pool that was like amazing. Uh, but she had a she had a cat, and uh, I used to chase the. I don't think the cat liked me very much, but I used to chase the cat around when I was a little kid, and I remember that. And uh, just you know, going down there, and, and Charlottesville was, you know, it's such a cute such a cute town and i mean town from a new yorker's perspective it's a little town but it was a really um really a, a beautiful place and and i uh appreciated the history and and the culture and i got exposed to some of that you know my grandmother would tell me stories about about charlottesville and and she was really into history and she would tell us about our our relatives and now if i didn't tell you that you know i'm i'm uh, re- related i'm listed on gunstonhall.org as a as a relative of a direct descendant of George Mason, the guy for George Mason University. I mean, I don't know. I, didn't, I haven't done the ancestry myself, but that's that's what's listed there. My parents, my dad would, would uh, tell me that I should I should throw that into the mix here. But I spent, a, a, Charlottesville was my was my introduction to the South growing up every year. And, you know, the, the food was a little different. The people were a little different. They were a little warmer, a little friendlier, that talked a little different than New Yorkers I was uh, used to. And, and it was always it was always special to go down there, and I just have such memories of visiting uh, visiting Grandma and my my uncle, my dad's brother, down there in Charlottesville, and going to the restaurants and visiting Farmington Country Club and all these different places, and going to UVA and seeing it the first time with my dad. And so that's Charlottesville for me. It's uh, it's really a beautiful and a, and a great place. And I'm just I'm sorry for what happened to it, but I know that it will. Uh, yeah, Charlottesville is going to be just fine, and I, and I send. Uh, 
thoughts, prayers, and, and hugs to all the folks down there who are just trying to move past this whole situation. All right, uh, we're going to hit a break here. got a lot of national security coming up. North Korea, Venezuela, narco-trafficking from the top of the Venezuelan government. People cheering as they toppled a monument to Confederate soldiers in Durham, North Carolina. Buck Sexton, back with you all now. Uh, I saw the uh, video of this. You just heard the audio. Um, This is now spiraling into more and more uh, demands for monuments, uh, Confederate monuments or monuments of people that are tied to slavery. Really, any public manifestation of anyone from American history uh, who has any ties to slavery or the Confederacy. This is this is just going to get these calls are going to get louder and louder. This is a movement right now. It's a a sort of Confederacy iconoclasm, uh, iconoclasts being those who are breakers of icons. I am relatively certain that very few, if any, of the it seemed like mostly college students who are pulling down this monument in Durham, although I don't know. I just saw what I saw in the video. Uh, I wonder how many of them would even know the original iconoclasts were in, what, the 7th and 8th century of the Byzantine Empire. The Eastern Orthodox Christian Empire, they decided that people who were venerating images of saints, of uh, of, well, any images, were temporarily destro- uh, in the process of being destroyed and banned by the Eastern Orthodox Byzantine church uh but that's i guess eighth uh, eighth century history we can spend time on another day but those are the original iconoclasts image breakers and right now people are in a uh a particular surge of iconoclasm when it comes to anything associated with the confederacy or the civil war uh, well i'm sorry not the civil war but the confederacy slaveholders and and such uh you even have Maryland Governor, I just saw this, this just today, Maryland Governor Larry Hogan is a Republican, saying that he wants the statue of Roger uh, Taney, U.S. Supreme Court Justice, who defended slavery in the uh, infamous Dred Scott decision of 1857. Uh, They want the Taney statue to come down, which is, this is particularly noteworthy, I think, because just a year ago, Hogan was saying, no, 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 come on, we're not going to be erasing history. Well, right now, the heat's been turned up. So you're seeing a lot of people say, oh, actually, we're going to have to do some erasing of history. Um, now, before I get into where I think the argument falls apart here for destroying or uh, removing all of these statues, I want to get there in a second. Let me first say I am... Uh, sympathetic to the argument that in some cases and in some places, there should be a public debate, and there has been a public debate about removing uh, items that are associated with the Confederacy or with certain individuals tied to the Confederacy that seem to elevate them on public grounds today. I, I am sympathetic to that argument, but it's on a it's a case by case matter. Right. Just as, you know, we, we can all make these distinctions, right? Somebody walking, just to take it away from the Civil War and the Confederacy for a moment here entirely, someone walking down the street wearing a Nazi uniform, terrible thing. 
Don't wear Nazi uniforms. Neo-Nazis are, are very, very bad. Someone who is portraying a Nazi in a World War II film wearing a Nazi uniform for the purposes of historical accuracy, all okay with that. We understand, right, that that's, that's portraying it in a theatrical sense and that has nothing to do with a person's ideology or belief. So time and place, these things matter. Having a statue of a Confederate, uh, a person who was a Confederate at a war memorial, that's different. I think you can at least argue that's different from flying a, or forget about flying the Confederate flag for a moment, from a monument to a uh, Confederate soldier or to Confederate soldiers flying on, or not flying, pardon me, uh, that is placed prominently on the grounds of a state capitol, let's say. But destroying it is not the answer. If you want to move it to a museum, if you want to move it to a war memorial, you know that's a discussion that, that adults can have and I think should have on a state-by-state, city-by-city basis. But destroying public property, just because you feel like it, is not okay at all. And also, let's look at the ideas behind this movement of let's destroy property that is associated or destroy icons associated with the Civil War of the Confederacy. Where does it stop? George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down, excuse me, are we going to take down, are we going to take down statues to George Washington? How about Thomas Jefferson? What do you think of Thomas Jefferson? You like him? Okay, good. Are we going to take down the statue? Because he was a major slave owner. Now we're going to take down his statue. So you know what? It's fine. You're changing history. You're changing culture. President Trump has a point there. And, and I would like to know what the answer is. There is now a moral imperative. If it is an obligation, my friends, for us to destroy statues, like in the case of Durham, that was a statue for Confederate soldiers. By the way, as we know, and just a, a quick bit of history here, that I, and I know I've got a lot of people listening that know a tremendous amount about the Civil War, a tremendous amount more than I do, uh, but the number of, uh, you know, it was a, a minority of families in the South uh, owned slaves, and in fact, I've been to uh, one, of the, uh, one of the slave market museums in Char- I've been to the Slave Market Museum in Charleston, and there, one of the most interesting statistics is that 3% of Southerners at the time of the Civil War owned 97, uh, 97% of the slaves. So it was an, really an o- oligarchy of Southern, very wealthy Southerners who were the, pre- predominantly the slave owners. Uh, but this is all lost and now. And anyone who was, you know, anyone who was fighting for the cause of the Confederacy, anyone who was fighting is, cons- it, it's, it doesn't, there's no nuance allowed here, no discussion allowed. It's just s- slave owners, uh, or, or rather anyone associated with the Confederacy, their re- record in history has to be altered. It has to be destroyed. Now we have to pull down the statues, pull down the statues, get rid of monuments and no discussion, um, beyond that. That's no, no discussion beyond that allowed. Um, okay. So let's, as I said, let's just assume for a moment that they are correct here in that in that initial premise. And I know that's a huge assumption that many of you are like probably, you know, hope, well, hopefully not actually throwing your 
radio against the wall because that'd be tough if it's in your car or throwing your iPhone, whatever, however you're listening. Um, and I know a lot of you will say the Confederate flag is, is a much more complicated issue than the left wants to believe it. I'm not even going there right now because we don't have to to see how what's going on here with the pulling down of this monument in Durham. Th- this is just going to lead to craziness. I mean, this is just going to be an invitation for destruction and, and acts of, of anarchy uh, all under a, what's really just a self-congratulatory virtue signaling spasm, which is what's going on here with a lot of these people that are pulling down the stuff. It's, oh, look at me. I'm so tough. You know, there are ways there are ways to combat modern racism. There are ways to deal with inequality and racism in American society uh, that are much tougher and much more worthwhile, of course, than walking over and, you know, taking a taking a selfie with the toppled statue. And as people have been pointing out, the, the there's a what is it a Lenin statue in Seattle that's not coming down. Uh, any any school named after former Senator Byrd that's he was a Ku Klux Klan, uh, I believe, Grand Wizard. That's not coming down. You know, so th- there's a lot of double standards there. But even beyond that, uh, where do we where does this stop? Where does it end? If we're, we're going to now go through this as a country and there are these calls, I said, the governor of Maryland saying it should come down. Other people are saying, oh, we've got to pull down this statue, got to pull down that statue. As if that's going to solve any problems for anyone. Right? It doesn't really do anything. And destroying public property and doing it just because you feel like it's a terrible example. It's illegal. It's a terrible example to set. Um, but what about some of the other c- Confederate names uh, named places that are out there are we going to uh rename camp beauregard for confederate general pierre gustave beauregard what about fort benning in georgia brigadier general henry benning a supporter of slavery by the way fort bragg one of the most famous u.s military installations in the country uh he was confederate uh fort hood biggest armor post in the united states for active duty Confederate Fort Lee, obviously for General Robert E. Lee. Um, and by the way, how can we claim to just limit it to the Civil War? Washington, Jefferson, I guess we have to rename our capital city. I guess we have to rename any monument, any street, any school named for Jefferson or Washington. There are hundreds of schools that are named for people that are associated with the Confederacy. So what what are we what are we going to do? Why why stop there? You've seen this hypocrisy on display in uh, in its microcosm form at Yale University, as I as I like to bring up. Yale will rename Calhoun Dorm because John Calhoun is a supporter of slavery, but they and, and they will change the name of the people that are in charge of the residential colleges from being masters, just because like that triggers people that there are masters, and, but they won't rename Yale which is named for Elihu Yale. And as a fun little side fact, for those of you who are curious, and there is an argument to be made that Jeremiah Dummer was much more important in the, in the founding of the College of New Haven, which became Yale University, or New Haven College. But you know what the problem was? They didn't want to call it Dummer College. So Yale won out. Elihu Yale. Slave trader, not just owner, slave trader. But Yale's a very valuable name. They don't want to get rid of it. Where do we stop this? Where does it end? What are the outer limits of this movement? What are the what are the uh, 
the lines that we're not going to cross. Do we have to rename our capital city? What do we have, like a referendum on it? We can't call it Washington, D.C. anymore. Can't call it Washington State. I, if, if I would like someone to explain to me, if you're going to pull down uh, memor- uh, memorials to Confederate soldiers, if you're going to pull down Robert E. Lee statue, if you're going to pull these things down because of associations with slavery, I, I just would like to know where it stopped. And the president was asking this question, and I, I haven't heard any good answers. I think, by the way, I think there will be people who say, yes, yes, we do need to re- we do need to repudiate the founders. Yes, we do need to rename Washington, D.C., because otherwise there's an inherent inconsistency here. So I, I offer you there are a few positions, and then we'll run into a break here. I offer you there are, there are a few positions. Uh, you can take the let's look at this case by case, state by state, issue by issue, memorial by memorial, and understand that history is important. Understanding history is important. There's a lot of complexity here. And destroying monuments is different from moving them from places of prominence on capital grounds. Maintaining them at a memorial or maintaining them in a museum is a respectful way to keep in mind the history of what happened here without making people feel like their tax dollars are going to elevate something that they oppose. That's one position. That's And I, I try to articulate that's the position that I hold. There's the um, let's bring it all down or, or, you know, there's the let's bring it all down position, I suppose. And then there's the, well, no, let's just bring them down now while we're still really angry about it, and we'll bring down as many as we can, and then we'll stop, and then this is all just for show. I don't know what the other position is or what other positions there are, but I'm curious. Uh, we will run into a break here. I want to, uh, we'll have a guest joining, and, oh, I, I haven't, by the way, just before we go into this, um, there was a CBS report about the, the quote, the quote, eradication of down syndrome in iceland through abortion and this was on cbs news i am going to talk to you about it in the next hour it is tough stuff to listen to tough stuff to get into but it's important and so we will but i, I wanted to mention i mentioned it briefly in the first hour but we, we, i will spend some real time on this issue uh, because it is modern eugenics it is and it's uh, it's horrifying so that's something else that will be coming up in the next hour important for us to discuss as well as Venezuela as a narco state and also the latest with the North Korea nuclear showdown. So very dense, uh, analytically dense and emotionally uh, dense third hour coming up here. And uh, stay with me for that. Lots of lines are lit and uh, we've got a guest calling in as well. So let's get right to it. Ned Ryan is with us. He's founder and CEO of American Majority Action and a former presidential uh, writer for President George W. Bush. Ned, thanks for making time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Good to be back with you, Buck. Well, all right. What 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 do you think? I mean, as somebody who has uh, been partial to defending the Trump administration through some tough stuff, where do you think they're? Where do you think it is right now? I mean, how's this White House doing? Uh, you know, let's let's be honest. Uh, his statement I thought was a very strong one yesterday. Uh, to be honest, I wish he'd made that on Saturday. Uh, but that all to say, I mean, he has called it out. He has named it by name that we're to reject the alt right, the KKK, white supremacists. Um, you know, the, the the thing that has been extremely unfair towards Trump and, quite frankly, any Republican administration, because, Buck, let's remember, they were calling McCain and Palin Nazis. I mean, think about John McCain and they're calling him a Nazi. They called Mitt Romney a Nazi. They're, this is like a knee jerk reaction by the left and the press to go out and call every Republican administration. They've been called Bush that, you know, Nazis and fascists. 
um, you know, the thing that I think Trump is making, and maybe not as artfully as he could, but let's name it by name on both sides. Let's call out Antifa as well. Let's call out Black Lives Matter and say these groups that are very, very much on the fringe need to be called out because they are both playing identity politics, which I think is extremely harmful to our political dialogue in the U.S. right now. Also, it looks like there may be more movement among his top advisors, very senior people in the administration uh, because of what's happened the last few days. You had the president asked about the role of Steve Bannon today during a press conference. Here's what he said. Mr. Bannon, can you talk about that? I I would echo Maggie's question. Steve Bannon is I never spoke to Mr. Bannon about it. Tell us broadly what your do you have still have confidence? Well, in we'll see. And look, look. I like Mr. Bannon. He's a friend of mine. But Mr. Bannon came on very late. You know that. I went through seventeen senators, governor, primers. Came on very much later than that. Uh, and I like him. He's a good man. Uh, he is not a racist. I can tell you that. He's a good person. He actually gets a very unfair press in that regard. But we'll see what happens with Mr. Bannon. But he's a good person, and I think the press treats him, frankly, very unfairly. Ned, uh, we'll see what happens. What do you think Uh, happens? You know, first of all, I would reiterate, I've known Bannon for years. I mean, this guy is not a racist at all. He took, he literally took two Jewish guys, Andrew Breitbart and Larry Soloff, and helped them actually figure out how to make Breitbart happen. He figured out the financing for them and got it off the ground. So, you know, for, for people to say Bannon's a racist or anti-Semitic, all that, that's just the furthest thing from the truth. Um, the thing that's a little bit troubling about those comments, a lot of Trump's base, and I will say this, Buck, I would say that I think it was 43, 40, what is it, 43, 44 percent of the vote that Trump got. I would say about 20 percent of that, they'll vote for Trump no matter what. I mean, literally, they, he could do, you know, shoot somebody in Times Square, they'd still vote for him. The other 20-some percent actually is very deeply interested in the Trump agenda. It's not a cult of personality. And so the thing that concerns me is a lot of that percentage view Bannon as kind of the torchbearer of the carrier of that national populism that, you know, people want to see happen. They want to see enacted. And so the, the thing that would be troubling to me if Bannon is forced out, it would be a very poor signal to the base about the future of what the campaign agenda would look like moving forward. Now, there was a question today during that press conference about the agenda, specifically on infrastructure. Here's what the president said. No longer will we allow the infrastructure of our magnificent country to crumble and decay. While protecting the environment, we will build gleaming new roads, bridges, railways, waterways, tunnels, and highways. What do you think, uh, Ned, is the likelihood? And by the way, we're speaking to Ned Ryan, who's founder and CEO of American Majority Action. What do you think the likelihood is that this is an, an agenda item that uh, that Trump will be able to deliver on in the next, oh, let's say, 12 months? At least get it started, because, you know, there's so much focus right now on, you know, racism and Russia and all this other stuff. The agenda gets left by the side, by the wayside. What do you think? I was going to say, even on the agenda items, Buck, we still got to deal with health care. We still got to deal with tax reform. Um you know, I, that's a great question, because, first of all, I really thought we should have started with infrastructure and tax reform, not nearly as as partisan an issue as health care uh, and not deeply, you know, with, with, with as deep rooted feelings about the issues. Um, that all to say, I think he's got a chance on infrastructure to get these at least some of the 10 what I call red state Democrats that are up in 2018, the Joe Manchins and the Heidi Heitkamps of the world. 
to maybe at least consider coming his way on infrastructure, because he's right. I mean, Donald Trump is 100 percent right on this whole infrastructure issue. We have roads, we have airports, we have all of these things that are in bad, you know, badly in need of repair, of, of a refreshment, uh, of bringing it back up to snuff. So I would hope that some of the Democrats, especially those that are up for re-election in 2018, would be able to say, you know what, this is for the betterment of the country, it's for the betterment of the voters, let's uh, see if we can't come to, to, to some sort of compromise on at least infrastructure. But, Buck, i got to tell you, when they come back in September – They've got to get something done. I, I hope that they can get something done at least on tax reform. I'm not even asking for the world. It makes me a little nervous, to be quite honest, when they talk about sweeping and comprehensive reform. Let's set three or four big items. You know, reduce the corporate tax, repatriate the $2.6 trillion sitting overseas, you know, maybe narrow down some of the tax brackets and focus on some cuts for the middle class. Okay, great. And small business. Great. Done. Let's get something done before the end of the year. So, you know, I'm hopeful that we will get uh, tax reform and potentially uh, something done on infrastructure before the end of the year. But but who knows? I mean, I, the thing that worries me a little bit, Buck, is Chuck Schumer and the Democrats think that they have come across a winning solution, which is pure obstruction every step of the way. Um, and it, and quite frankly, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have not fought as hard as they could have. And so it all depends on if Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell want to fight like crazy when they come back and see if they can't break through this logjam of Democrat obstruction. Ned Ryan, founder and CEO of American Majority Action. Uh, Ned, great to have you, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks, Buck. Um, and team, by the way, if you appreciate what we're doing here on the show, I would uh, ask as a little favor. Um, first of all, you can always go to BuckSexton.com. Uh, you can get uh, T-shirts there. Team Buck gear is available. Also, Freedom Hut T-shirts. I, I'm partial to the Freedom Hut T-shirts. Uh, and you can get hats there. And by supporting or by getting gear, you support the show. Also, of course, by checking out our wonderful sponsors You know that we uh, – talk to you about over the course of the program and uh, the podcast please do they're free um it's a great way to get somebody interested in the show that hasn't heard it already if you're listening live if you have itunes you go to buck sexton with america now you can download it there and share it and also uh you can just send somebody an email with the link to it and uh you can listen on the iheart app if you have an internet connection cell phone service anywhere in the country and so uh spread the word as uh, if you could tell one friend you'd really help out with the show brian in virginia wrva what's up brian Hey, Buck. Uh, good to talk with you. You too. Uh, I just want to throw out, if if you want to tear down uh, monuments and statues, uh, I think you should just go ahead and raise the pyramids. Uh, they were obvious slaveholders, and uh, history has recorded that. Well, you know, Brian, I, I see I see what you're trying to say. I mean, obviously the pyramids are, are in Egypt. Uh, I've been to the pyramids. Interesting to check them out. Uh, but it, it is a, a fallacy of the left that slavery is a is a uniquely American institution. In fact, slavery, those of you familiar with the Bible know, has been around for millennia. Um, and it is, in fact, part of America's great legacy that we were able to, uh, with, of course, a very bloody civil war, um, get rid of that institution and make progress when it comes to racial equality, uh, and to do so because of the ideology of all men are created equal. And anyway, I don't have, I, I wish I had more time to even get into that right now, but Brian Shields, hi, man. Thank you for calling in. Um, we are going to be getting into uh, narco state Venezuela. Fascinating stuff. I don't think you've heard it anywhere else. I'll be telling you about that in the next hour. And also uh, the eugenics against a very vulnerable population in Iceland. 
You are now entering the Freedom Hub Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un looking at each other across the global stage and nuclear weapons, of course, are in play. For now, Kim Jong-un is the one who has stepped back. He has said through his official state news media that there will not be a strike, at least not an imminent one, on Guam. What should we make of this and what should the path forward be on North Korea? To address that with us, we're joined now by Claire Lopez. She is a vice president at the Center for Security Policy and a former CIA officer. Claire, great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be with you. Yeah, always good to have somebody from the uh, from the former Langley family on the program. I appreciate it. Uh, what are your just first with uh, Kim Jong Un? I, I wasn't expecting. I don't think anybody else was expecting there to be a a real military strike or even necessarily additional provocation from the North Korean regime in response to Trump. But can we say that this is a, a victory at least at the uh, at the public relations level, at the propaganda level for the administration against North Korea? Yes, I do think so. Um, I also think that the president, uh, Trump, um, understands how to deal with uh, bullies like Kim Jong-un, who, who really heads a very uh, fragile and unstable regime. Um, I think that Trump uh, understands instinctively, maybe it is, um, that by pushing back with the kind of rhetoric he used against Kim Jong-un, the Pyongyang regime, um, he was actually um, playing to the regime itself and their fears of him as being a little bit unpredictable, a little bit maybe unstable, who knows what he might do. Uh, there's there's a rationale to to treading that fine line, I think, between appearing uh, uh, to be rational and irrational. There's something to be said for, for, for going a little bit over that line towards a perception of irrationality. So it keeps the leadership and Kim Jong-un in particular on their on their toes a bit as they try to uh, anticipate whatever moves Trump may make. But to that end, Claire, we know that President Trump just yesterday spoke about uh, China and about uh, intellectual property theft, copyright, trademark infringement going on in, in a massive industrial scale in China. As friends of mine, just uh, visitors there will see it out on the streets. And there's there's tons of copyright infringement and there's much more high level uh, intellectual property theft going on as well. Now, he's putting China on notice, but do you think that this is to just ratchet up the pressure on China? Does this give him another card to play in getting China to be more cooperative on North Korea? What was the thinking? I mean, the timing of the China move certainly is noteworthy. Yeah, I think it is, too. And we don't always know exactly what's going on behind the scenes, what kind of talks are taking place. Of course, we saw the op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal today from Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, co-authored with Secretary of Defense uh, General Mattis. Um, and, and in there, they, they do talk about uh, imposing sanctions and imposing a financial cost uh, that would isolate Pyongyang and the regime of Kim Jong-un. And, of course, the Chinese, as well as Russians and others, are certainly part of that. And, and so I think the pressure is not just against Pyongyang, but, 
but also those who enable that regime to to exist financially. We're speaking to Clara Lopez. She's a vice president at the Center for Security Policy, also a former uh, CIA officer. Claire, uh, you're also an, an Iran expert, I know, and I'm just wondering what lessons you think. I mean, the mullahs in Tehran must be watching Trump's uh, interactions or Trump's statements with the North Korean regime, uh, you know, in public with great interest to get a sense of perhaps what they may be facing. What lessons, if any, do you think Nor- uh, do you think Iran may be taking from this, or what may be changing in their thinking when it comes to dealing with Trump versus dealing with the Obama? administration before him? Well, they certainly are definitely watching developments uh, vis-a-vis the U.S. and and, and North Korea. Um, The question really, I think, is more to the point of what does the Trump administration understand about the working alliance, I call it a joint venture, really, between uh, Tehran and Pyongyang insofar as regards nuclear weapons development and ballistic missiles. Of course, we've had two now, recertifications of the JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, nuclear agreement with Iran, one in April, one just took place in July. The next one comes up in 90 days in October. What Iran's going to be watching for is whether the Trump administration will take the important step of refusing to recertify Iranian compliance with the JCPOA, which, of course, they, they should never have signed. Well, they didn't sign, but agreed to the JCPOA in the first place, um, but but de, uh, decertification, I think, is absolutely necessary. That's the key step the Iranians are going to be watching for. They are obviously completely in material breach of the JCPOA, uh, primarily because of their ongoing and, and, and never halted clandestine nuclear weapons program. Why is it that the Trump administration thus far then has done the certifications? I think a lot of people that have been happy with Trump's foreign policy teams uh, and Trump's foreign policy moves up to this point say uh, they're 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 willing to give some time for this. And, and is that really just what it's all about, giving the administration time to form a next stage of policy? Or are they trying to seem like they're at least willing to work with Iran at some level? Why do you think the two certifications so far? Well, it's a little hard to know from the outside. Uh, We do know that the influence of what we've been calling the Iran lobby, uh, that is the the, uh, pro-Tehran influence within the administration, uh, going back, of course, uh, many, many years into the George W. Bush administration, for that matter, uh, is strong and continuing. Um, It also may be well that uh, the decertification, which must occur in October, would not be a one-off. That's not a, a solitary step. It would be the first step, I think, in, in a longer process of acknowledging that Iran actually does have a clandestine nuclear weapons program, uh, that it works together with North Korea, including the very serious possibility uh, of sharing of EMP technology, electromagnetic pulse technology. We know that North Korea has got two satellites orbiting the United States right now, and we don't know what's in them. Uh, if it's an EMP, we don't know that it is, but if it were an EMP in either one of those, they can be set off remotely with a radio signal. So all of these things have to be, I think, worked through within the administration in terms of planning going forward. Um, maybe that's why they're waiting uh, to decertify, but they cannot go any further than October to to decertify and and really keep 
President Trump's campaign promised to rip up this deal. Claire Lopez with us now talking uh, about Iran and North Korea. She's from the Center for Security Policy. She's a former CIA officer. Claire, uh, just one more for you here. When people talk about North Korea and the threat of proliferation, and you mentioned the Iran-North Korea connection, which I think doesn't get nearly enough play in the press, can you just give people a sense of why should, why is that so concerning? How does that possibly go bad, or what does that look like? If North Korea decides that it will be a proliferator, what are some of the concerns we would have? Well, we know for a fact that uh, when Iran began uh, its its quest for the bomb in, in, in earnestness, in seriousness, in the late 1980s, before the Ayatollah Khomeini even uh, passed on, uh, they turned immediately to Pakistan uh, and as well to North Korea for the technology to build the bomb for Iran. That relationship has continued ever since, and it's been mutually beneficial for each uh, of them. Uh, ballistic missile technology, guidance systems, uh, as well as nuclear bomb technology, that is the warhead, um, the... the uh, uh, so, so for everyone listening, Claire, what, what North Korea gets, it's possible Iran could quickly get its hands on that too, which is a huge Absolutely. concern. All right. Yes. Claire yes. Lopez, everybody, Vice President at the Center for Security Policy. Uh, Claire, where can people read your work? Please go to centerforsecuritypolicy.org, or the shorter one is securefreedom.org. Fantastic. Claire, thank you so much for your time and for your service. I appreciate it. Thank you. Team, we're going to run to a break, come back and talk about Venezuela, a narco-trafficking state. This will blow your mind. We'll be right back. As you're aware, the Treasury Department of the United States has imposed financial sanctions on at least 17 Venezuelans for narcotics trafficking including nine current or former Venezuelan officials. For example, in February, the Treasury Department imposed drug trafficking sanctions against the vice president of the country. There are also very strong allegations made by defectors and others about the involvement of an individual by the name of Diosdado Cabello, uh, who I, in my personal view, based on everything I have seen, he's not simply a political leader. He is, in my view, the Pablo Escobar of Venezuela. I've talked to you before on the show about how Venezuela is a failed state, how Venezuela is a cautionary tale of what happens when a government can control prices, can seize assets, can use the rhetoric of social justice, just like in this country, you see it all the time, but can use the rhetoric of social justice in an effort uh, or in a ploy to undermine all state institutions, and then as those state institutions collapse, to just seize undiluted, unchecked power, which is exactly what is happening now in Venezuela. There are so many different lessons we've pointed to in the past. Price controls, for example. What happens when the Venezuelan—what did happen, I should say, when the Venezuelan government tried to declare the uh, price of milk or the price of flour or the price of toilet paper, all things that it did? Oh, guess what? After that happened, there was no more milk, flour, or toilet paper on the shelves. You had shortages. And in response to those shortages, you had the government saying that it was capitalists, imperialists in league with the Yankee uh, Norte Americanos, us Americans, that were the problem, that we were uh, somehow involved in making sure there wasn't enough toilet paper in Caracas, Venezuela. This is crazy, but this is what has been happening there. And all of this, it must always be repeated in a country that has the largest proven oil reserves in the world. So Venezuela is a place that shouldn't just be uh, not poor. Uh, It's a place that should be doing 
really well. And yet it is now among the most corrupt countries in the Western Hemisphere, the only one that really would, uh, off the top of my head, give it a run for its money would be Cuba, which, by the way, is one of the closest friends of the Venezuelan government. And Raul Castro, no surprise, and the president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, who is now really a full-on authoritarian tyrant, uh, they are buds and do all kinds of things to help each other out. But what you heard there from Marco Rubio, who I must give a lot of credit to for keeping this issue much higher up in the attention span of what at least some of the news media than it would otherwise be, and trying to raise government awareness about it as well, is that Venezuela is a massive narco-trafficking state now, too. I think if you were to go around and ask people how many of them would know that, for example, Nicolas Maduro's nephew and Nicolas Maduro's wife's uh, son, or someone she raised as her son, are both in federal prison for trying to arrange, in New York City no less, for trying to arrange a massive transfer of cocaine into America. These are members of Maduro's family, his close family members. Now, you might say, Bach, come on, you can't blame the Venezuelan premier for the actions of some people that just happen to be related to him. Oh, that's just the tip of the iceberg, my friends. You have the U.S. Treasury Department over the last eight months or so offering up sanctions, imposing sanctions on the vice president of Venezuela, Tariq al-Assami, for being a narco trafficker. Think about this for a moment. You have the vice president of Venezuela allegedly involved, and no reason to believe, as far as I can see, this is not true, allegedly involved in allowing Venezuelan government military air bases to be transshipment points for cocaine, which make their way to Mexico and then into the United States. Oh, it should also be noted that the vice president of Venezuela is in contact, therefore, with the Mexican drug cartels. So you have a, a government with still some considerable resources at its disposal with a vice president and a president. I mean, Maduro is, we just haven't caught him yet, but you, you can, of course, assume that he is neck deep in all this. He just tries not to get caught. I mean, he is as much of a dirtbag as anybody can be. So yeah, Maduro has got he's locking up the opposition. He's got thugs in the streets, intimidating people. He's got the security forces firing on demonstrators, murdering people in the streets. I mean, there's nothing this guy won't do. But what you see here is the final uh, or the finally the revelation that Venezuela is not just run by socialists and crooks. It's run by drug kingpins and that they are now much deeper and much more involved, who knows how central they are, to the cocaine trade for all of North America. Uh, we, we, once you have a government that's allowing for official, uh, official planes and official landing sites to be where cocaine is gathered, gathered and, and then shipped out into the, Ameri in, into the North America, into, well, us, we are the market for it, really, America, uh, once you allow that to happen, uh, a government, uh, a government is now capable of anything because it will. These people 
who are at the top could be federally prosecuted in U.S. court. Right. So this is an astonishing situation. Uh, You also have this guy, uh, Diosdado Cabello, who recently it was reported, not confirmed, put out some kind of a threat against Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio, which was taken seriously enough that there was uh, there were increased security measures taken to help Marco Rubio uh, to prevent anything from happening to Marco Rubio. And this is a guy who also has ties to the Venezuelan military and uh, narco traffickers. These individuals are worth billions of dollars. They are stashing assets all over the world. They're finding ways to invest in real estate. They're doing it here in America, too, I I should note, which is why the Treasury sanctions are taking some real, uh, real bite out of all of their proceeds, their illicit proceeds. But when you add this layer on top, Now you, I think, can get a much better sense of of just how dire the situation in Venezuela really is. You have the vice president, the president, uh, the former speaker of their, essentially the speaker of the house, the speaker of their parliament, uh, uh, Cabello, people involved with narco trafficking, huge amounts of cocaine, involved with the cartels, sending drugs into America. Uh, getting around our law enforcement agents involved with the vicious Mexican drug cartels that kill law enforcement, kill uh, informants, uh, just kill people all over the place, as we know. And add on to that, that the Venezuelan government with these narco trafficker thugs running it have close friendships and allegiances to Iran, to Syria, to Cuba, to Russia. Those are the countries that are stepping in to try and continue this regime because Venezuela is in many ways now a forward operating base for anti-U.S. countries to come together and find different ways to harm our interests, to find ways to flood the north with drugs, to find ways to uh, undermine our Uh, relationships with other Latin American countries in the region, the Russians, the Cubans, the Cubans are big into this, of course, the the Syrians. Uh, uh, Tarek al-Assaimi, who is the vice president, the narco-trafficker, who's sanctioned by the Treasury Department, he is also, he's Syrian by uh, by birth, or his, his family, rather, is Syrian, and he has direct connections to the Assad regime. So the vice president of Venezuela, who's a narco trafficker, is buddies with Assad. I mean, Putin is close with some of these guys. It's just madness when you look at what's happening here. And again, it's a foreign policy problem that the Obama administration just let collapse. I mean, just did nothing, didn't pursue any U.S. interest, didn't pursue any just no leadership, just sat back and watched the thing burn. And in fact, we know the American left is pretty sympathetic to Maduro and his idiotic Bolivarian pseudo-revolution. Uh, but Venezuela, a not just a failed state, but a narco-trafficking state now, everyone. Uh, and, and it's going to, you've already got attempted uh, attempted coups and repression and counter-repression, and it's just going to keep, keep getting worse. I want to tell you a story in a few moments that will answer the question, what does evil sound like? Stay with me through the break and you'll know. That's because over the last decade or so, 100% of pregnant women whose prenatal tests have come back positive for Down syndrome have decided to end their pregnancies. 
This is a country of about 350,000. It has now almost completely eliminated Down syndrome births since the test began in the early 2000s. There are similar trends across Europe, a stark contrast with the United States, where parents decide to end 67% of these pregnancies. That was a CBS News segment intro that was describing what would accurately be called eugenics because that is the targeted killing of a group of people in a group for undesirable traits. This is happening right now today in Iceland, in Europe, and to a lesser degree, but still ongoing here in America. The headlines here, which have gotten a lot of uh, attention because of both the uh, dishonesty and insensitivity of some of the terms and terminology used. Uh, the, the headlines here are almost congratulatory. Uh, they seem to suggest that there is this disease that is being eradicated. Uh, the initial title of this piece that I saw was Iceland is on the, on the verge of eliminating Down syndrome. Now, Iceland is engaged in a systematic campaign to promote the elimination of babies that have Down syndrome, which is a random uh, extra chromosome that causes, yes, causes uh, some difficulties in life. But people with Down syndrome lead very long, happy, healthy lives. In fact, there's research to suggest that people with Down syndrome are, in the aggregate, happier than people who are considered, quote, normal. These are human beings, regardless of their difficulty and their challenges in life, that there would be any sense of accomplishment or celebration in their eradication is it is it is hard to fathom uh, how far. We have fallen in Western civilization sometimes, how much we have devalued life and been sold this, this bill of, of lies. Um, I, I saw this report, and, and there, were, uh, there were some moments in it, there's some glimmers of hope. One of them is that at least in America, you have a third of parents who find out that their child is at risk of Down syndrome because of prenatal testing, and they choose to carry the baby to term and give that child life. Uh, So a third of parents in this country are choosing life, even when presented with the findings of a high-risk pregnancy when it comes to Down syndrome. Uh, But this is being written about and talked about by some as something worthy of celebration, as though we are eliminating polio or we are eliminating malaria no, they're eliminating people. They're, they're killing babies. And they are doing this with the full blessing, and I use that word specifically, and I'll get to that in a second, and support monetarily and otherwise of the state in Iceland, in European countries, and to a lesser extent here in America too. In the case of Iceland, though, the church is in fact... Uh, supportive of abortion rights or supportive of abortion, which I will just go on record right now and say this, although I don't think it needs to be said. Any church that supports abortion is not a church worthy of the name. And they have this woman who is an end of life counselor who appears in this, uh, who appears in this segment on CBS news. 
And she talks about how they view this whole process of figuring out that through it, through testing that a baby is at risk. Remember, at risk does not mean we'll even have Down syndrome. So there are babies, no doubt, who are being aborted because they may have Down syndrome and we'll never know the truth, but they weren't going to have Down syndrome. And oh, by the way, even if they did have Down syndrome, they're human beings. These are human beings. These are brothers and sisters. These are mothers and fathers to be. These are people that they are uh, promoting the extermination of. Now, I, I know that they say that it is a choice, just like, of course, all the abortion advocates will say it's a question of choice, uh, but that it is reported as reason for celebration, which is where, um, where CBS, I think, has caught the ire of so many who are pro-life that this is being positioned as a great thing that in Iceland, where they have a very homogenous uh, genetic population because it's such an isolated community, uh, that they would get rid of, quote, get rid of Down syndrome. They're actually getting rid of babies that are likely to be born with Down syndrome. But there's no way to, the only way to eliminate Down syndrome entirely would be to eliminate all babies because they don't know. The testing isn't, uh, isn't perfect on this issue. And think about what is being proposed here. If you want to know what evil sounds like, I think many of us conjure up the voice of some demonic presence, uh, maybe some individual, some, uh, uh, some manifestation with cloven hoofs and horns and red skin and a long tail with a point at the end. That's actually not what evil sounds like in real life, in our day-to-day lives. Evil actually can be quite bland. It can be boring, and it can cloak itself as being even-handed. Evil can even manage to present itself as concerned, thoughtful, trying to be supportive. Evil can sound a bit like this. Do some women express guilt? Yes, of course. Of course. What do you say? I said, this is your life. You have the right to choose how your life will look like. So what is this? Wow. This is a prayer. (laughs) This is the imprint of... A fetus that was terminated. Mm-hmm. I think in America, I think some people would be confused about people calling this our child or saying a prayer or saying goodbye or having a priest come in because to them, abortion is murder. We don't look at abortion as a murder. We look at it as a thing that we ended. We ended a possible life. That woman who is a pregnancy counselor paid by the state, because Iceland is a socialist country with a socialist health care system, with a state church that is supportive of, of abortion. So this is a secular status society that is the, uh, in many ways, amoral, immoral dystopia that many American conservatives worry America is increasingly becoming. But there you have a woman whose job it is to counsel uh, councilwoman about their pregnancies once they've been told that they may have, again, may, and even if it were 
that doesn't change, that shouldn't change the moral calculation, which is that babies deserve life. Um, but she can't even give a coherent answer to this. She, you can just tell she's there and she's this, this sort of uh, meek person in a, in a knit sweater who's just, you know, I, I don't want to judge and very, would be very at home in a women and gender studies class at, you know, one of the Seven Sisters colleges here in America. You know, you could tell she's very into inclusive rhetoric and, you know, she's learned this terminology. But she's looking at a reporter and explaining how it can in any moral universe be considered acceptable or anything short of monstrous, because we are talking about monstrous activity here, anything short of monstrous to have a card with a prayer written out and the, and the tiny footprints of an aborted baby on the card as though that's a, a kind and gentle way to say goodbye. That makes it all, that makes it all okay. That this, is, this has been processed and normalized and even blessed by the state. The elimination of babies for the likelihood of a medically, quote, undesirable trait is blessed, funded, and assisted by the state in Iceland and in European countries. This particular story was about Iceland because they've almost entirely eradicated babies with Down syndrome from Iceland, but it's happening in Europe too, and it's happening here in America, although I can imagine that here in America they keep it a bit quieter because there are those of us, many more of us in this country, who say not only should you not be aborting babies with Down syndrome, you should not be aborting any babies. So this would certainly not get the celebratory tones that you saw from the initial CBS headlines and, and coverage of this as though this is some medical advancement. They did quote one individual in this piece at CBSN saying that there's, quote, heavy-handed genetic counseling going on here because they are aborting babies based on risk. Well, I say that there's not only that going on, there is a moral perversion at work here and that the state is involved and Icelandic society is involved in what can be described as no less than eugenics because that is what this is, is a reminder that evil lurks even in otherwise peaceful and prosperous countries and evil can come out of the mouths of kindly-looking and soft-spoken men and women who are presenting themselves as assisting and helping. They just want to do the right thing. But, of course, they are doing something deeply immoral. That's really what evil sounds like in your life and in mine, too. I can assure you that. People around us who present themselves as having good intentions or maybe even believe that they are doing the right thing, but they are doing something for which uh, they will never recover in terms of their soul and in terms of their conduct. And perhaps they will be sorry, perhaps they will turn and recognize the error of their ways and they will achieve forgiveness, but there will always be that stain and that sense of, of loss and wrong. Uh, it was a difficult piece to watch, this CBS story on Iceland. It was 
it was hurtful. And, you know, at the end, uh, they showed, or at, at a few points, they showed um, a little girl who had Down syndrome, maybe five or six years old, and she's uh, she's running around, and she's laughing, and she's she's playing, and her her mother is there, and her mother loves her, and she has a sibling, and she... And what we're, we're supposed to sell, we're supposed to celebrate, or or in some way mark it as progress that most of those little girls have been killed, have been eliminated in the womb. What is what is happening uh, in our world? What is going on? This is in wealthy, developed, educated parts of the globe among the most wealthy it's uh, it's wrong and while we can't change it today we can never forget that it's wrong all right i've got to go into a break i'll, I'll be right back uh, we'll, we'll we'll change topics because this is i know this isn't this is intense but i i wanted to share it with you and i think it's important i know i know it's important um but we'll we'll change it up when we come back so just give me a minute to collect things during the break here Hey team, Buck Sexton back with you. I'm a big proponent of books, but I mean physical, hard copy, hold them in your hands, read them, take them to the beach, dog ear the pages, break the spine, whatever it is you want to do, although you should be kind to your books and not treat them like crap. Uh, But I'm a big proponent of books, Uh, actual physical books that you can hold. And that doesn't mean I'm opposed to the e-readers. I have a Kindle at home, but I believe that books have a place in our lives and in society that we will never replace entirely and we should never try to. And, you know, I sit here and I read a story uh, earlier today about how Amazon is actually opening, which is Amazon is the great you know, the great threat to retail. Amazon, well, it's in a sense becoming retail, but to the traditional retail model of you have a storefront, you buy inventory and you sell it, and Amazon is turning that upside down. And we've seen this with the uh, recent acquisition of Whole Foods. I mean, Amazon is going to be the the biggest, uh, strongest player in the retail space for decades to come unless somebody else is able to challenge them and deal with their huge logistics and technology advantages. Uh, but I digress. Books, however, are a technology that have been, technically speaking, outdated for well over a decade now. E-readers have been out there. Uh, there have been Kindle sales going up and up. But, you know, what's amazing is that Amazon is opening actual bookstores now where you can buy books, places where you can go. And yes, they leverage technology and they're setting them up differently but it's a place where you can go and there are other human beings and you can thumb through some actual books. And local booksellers are staying in business in a lot of places, despite all of the claims that they would be completely uh, out of business because of what happened to Barnes and Noble and some of those other mega literary retailers or literature retailers, book retailers. Uh, But the local bookstore is different. It's an experience, and I'm sure you have one near you or whatever the nearest town or city is to you. You'll go and see, and there's just something uh, quieting and peaceful and interesting, and there's an escape, and there's a socialization. There's a being around other people and having 
great works of literature and the the the, the colors of the different uh, uh, covers and the the actual books. I, I know it sounds crazy, but there's something about them, um, and it's not something that is in the physical realm that I can explain. But there's almost a process of Spiritual uh, enrichment and intellectual enlightenment that comes from just being around books, and this is why I'm so uh, wedded to carrying around. I mean, I have uh, not that much space in my new apartment, but I can sit there and right next to my desk and right now where I do my work, I have a bookshelf, and I even have an additional stack or two. Despite Molly getting annoyed with the mess of books that I'm just not giving up, Uh, they are like friends. They are to stay with me and near me and to keep me company and to keep me entertained and to keep me uh, or to make me more knowledgeable. Actual books. Um, I've got a whole bunch of them. I mean, I could just sit here and think about how I need to have at hand different stories of Hannibal's invasion of the Italian peninsula. I've got Steve Cole's The Bin Ladens. I've got Hadley Archie's First Things. I've got The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, The Count of Monte Cristo by Dumas. Uh, I've got Infidel by Ayan Hirsi Ali, The Pirate Coast, a book about the Barbary Wars, The Galleys of Lepanto about Lepanto. Actual books just all sitting next to my desk, keeping me company, being with me. Uh, so I'm, uh, I'm glad to see that they're making a comeback. In fact, they're outselling retail books these days. With that team, I have to uh, say thank you as always for joining. I'll be with you tomorrow, same time, same place, Shields High.